0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Brown Girls Read Podcast. This is your host, Tamantivana.
1: And this is Kathy Thakur. And both of us love reading
0: books. On this podcast, we bring our favorite books to you and discuss the parts that were most meaningful to us and how we found them interesting or relatable as Brown Girls. Today, we have invited Eve Rodsky, the author of Fair Play, for a
1: conversation with us. Fairplay offers a revolutionary, real-world solution to the problem of unpaid, invisible work that women have shouldered for too long. If you haven't listened to our discussion of Fair Play, check out the previous episode.
0: Hey Eve, welcome to Brown Girls Read. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: I'm so happy to be here. I love your podcast and... You know, I've I gotten to hear you speak about one of my favorite books, Wasamya Dave, is that how you pronounce oh, yeah. her last name? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm really excited to be here.
0: Uh, thank you for listening.
1: Yeah, thank you for listening. And we loved reading your book, Fair Play. We loved getting to know the Fair Play system. I have actually already started implementing it with my husband a little bit. You know, I'm easing him into it. And I think one of the things that we loved about the book is all the research that went into it that you did for creating the system. So today we want to discuss Fair Play, your journey and your favorite reads with you.
2: So excited.
1: Before we begin, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you started on the journey of creating this fair play system? Sure.
2: Thank you, listeners. You know, I I didn't set out to be any sort of expert on what I now know is called the gendered division of labor, um, which is a global issue. And we'll talk about sort of the political movement that fair play has become. But it started really as a personal movement to save my own marriage. And I write about that in Fair Play as my mother said, she's a professor of social change. Um, she says, for real change, whether it's societal change or personal change, you have to go from preconsciousness to consciousness to then a fight for solutions. For about 35 years of my life, I was in preconsciousness. I had no idea that women held two-thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. This is, a, like I said, a global issue. This is not just the U.S. In my life, it manifests, as you saw, I wrote about, right? It manifests in a breakdown for me on the side of the road. When my husband, Seth, sent me a text that just said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And you can picture the scene because I don't get to really break down the scene in the book, which is, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. That text came in as I just had my second son, Ben. So I had a newborn at home. I was in the car racing to pick up my older son, who was a toddler at the time. I had a client contract in my lap because I had been forced out of the traditional workforce. I never say opted out anymore or dropped out. I say forced out. I was trying to mark up the contract as I had started my own firm. There was a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. There were gifts for a newborn baby to return in the back seat of my car. Every time I would hit the brakes because I was racing to pick up Zach, because I'm always late, because I have a million things to do, a pen would sort of stab me in the vagina because I was marking up this contract (laughs) with a pen, an actual pen. So that was the metaphor for that day. I would hit the stop sign or the brakes and I would just be stabbed in the vagina with a pen. (laughs) And that's what happened to me that day. And so for me to pull over and be late to pick up my toddler, things had to be really bad. And I think that was the first day crying on the side of the road, thinking to myself, A, I'm the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. B, this is not the career marriage combo I thought I was gonna have and see how would I become, you know, the defaults, I call in fair play the she fault for literally every single household and domestic task for my family. It wasn't supposed to happen to me. Duman, this was not supposed to happen to me. This, was <laughs> my, this, You know, I have the privilege of being the daughter of a single mother. So I had thought a lot about what the relationship I wanted to have looked like. And on top of that, I'm a Harvard-trained mediator. I'm literally trained to use my voice. So I think that was the day where I realized maybe this is more than just my problem. And I started a real quest, a quest like, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon or any of our children's books we read our kids, like a quest to find out what was happening to me. And especially so it didn't happen to your generation. So it didn't happen to the women younger than me, whether it was one year younger or a decade younger, I didn't want anybody else to have to go through that type of pain and realization that the world
1: felt so unfair. Yeah, that is what is so inspiring about it, you know, that you notice a problem in your life and you wanted to solve it, not only for yourself, but for everyone around you. First of all, a lot of us don't even have that awareness, right? That something that shouldn't be happening to me is happening to me. And then a lot of us don't have the courage to take the next step forward. Like, what can I do about it? That is what I think I found the most inspiring in this book. I'm just
0: so happy that you wrote it because a lot of people need it even when they don't realize they need it. I might not be relating to every single thing in the book because of being in different stage of life, but so much of that resonated still because I have heard these things in conversations with friends who are in those stages of life, who are complaining, who are trying to figure out why they feel this way, why they are like so bogged down by this weight. And they also feel guilty for feeling this way because as a mom, they are supposed to be a good mom and not feel this way all this projection we have heard in our lives. Moms are put on this pedestal for being sacrificial, almost. I think that is a very damaging thing. So I'm really glad this book is out there. And whenever I meet a friend or talk to them now, I'm like, oh, you know, you should read that book. (laughs) I just remember I had a conversation with a friend yesterday where she was complaining about how her family, they are going to see snow in Yosemite for their young son who has never seen snow in life. And then she was like, you know, I was the one who did everything. And this guy is just like going along. And I'm like, you know what? Here's a book for you. Read it. You
2: you. you think about all the stuff, right? You have to think, you have to conceive. Oh, I really want my child to see snow, right? I call that informal education. That's one of the cards of the Fair Play system because it's a metaphor where you have a hundred cards and you really look at those cards. Not as a scorekeeping exercise, but to say, what do we value together as a couple, but also how can we make this fair? doesn't have to be 50-50. I think we should burn that expression, but the fairness comes from the ownership. Say we're talking about informal education, whether it's you want to teach your child to ride a bike or you want to take them to see the snow. You first have to know what you may want your child to see or do. That's what I call conception. And then you have to plan it whether it's calling a travel agent or researching on Expedia where there's a safe place you can go into Yosemite, then you have to think about how cold it is and what you want to pack for that child. Do they need bottles? Do they still need overnight diapers? Am I going to need sheets for this place I rented? Or is it a hotel? What kind of winter jacket do we need? What's the temperature? How are we going to get there safely? Do we need hand sanitizer? Where's the masks? This is one trip. And then you multiply that by thousands of it's on you. Right. You get through every single day when you're a woman. Yeah. And then you start to realize that when we talk about the workplace, when we talk about politics, why women aren't there, you look at the labor force participation rates in India, you look at them in Japan, now in America, right? We're back to the 1980s. And thank you, Demond, for saying that, you know, even in a different stage of life, that you still believe in these messages. I really appreciate that because we need cultural warriors of all stages of life to say this is not on us. But that's the problem. The home presents so small, as you were saying earlier, because people think they're fighting over blueberries. Right? I thought my marriage was ending over blueberries. I had a man in White Plains, New York, tell me he, his, he got a divorce over a glue stick. That's the problem. So we think we're having these small fights in our own house over who bought the jacket for Yosemite. But what I'm here to tell everybody is that, you know, the personal is political. Private lives are public issues. And none of these things that you're fighting over is your fault. There's no guilt that you should be feeling about it. And more importantly, this is a political issue for how we value mothers and for how we treat women. And so that's why ultimately... I really appreciate you coming on this journey
0: with me because I can't do this alone. Absolutely. I totally agree with everything you have said. And the way you started doing this with that shit I do list and started crowdsourcing all the shit that women do, I found it just amazing. It was also empowering to read because you start saying, oh, yes, I also do this thing and never considered this as work. And, you know, slowly you start valuing the little things that you do in your own life. So I was really curious, like, what are some of the most outrageous or like craziest things you have seen on that list?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. So just for your, yeah, to give the context to your readers, um, after that Blueberries Day, one of the things I did was I went on a breast cancer march and I write about this because this is what was the origin of the Should I Do spreadsheet. It was having nine women with me on this beautiful old Saturday where we were honoring our friends and having this great morning until I say like we became the reverse Cinderella, right? We all sort of turn into pumpkins at noon because all of a sudden we're not even talking to each other. Our phones are blowing up with, you know, texts like, when are you coming home from the parade? Or like my friend's partner who said, you know, where's Hudson's soccer bag? My other friend's partner, what's the address of the birthday party? You didn't leave me a gift. My favorite was my friend, talk about Outrageous. My friend Kate's husband that day texted her when we were all marching, you know, for breast cancer. Um, do the kids need to eat lunch? (laughs) Um, So I think the, the, I think for me, the real outrage was watching all those powerful women. They're powerful women engaged in the workforce, using their voice everywhere else. Executives, leaders all look at me. All nine of them say to me, Oh my God, Eve, you know, I, I left my partner with too much to do. I finally had my first act of resistance. I wouldn't let them leave until we counted up how many phone calls and texts we had received. And that was 30 phone calls, 46 texts for 10 women over 30 minutes. That's crazy. Oh, my God. And so my outrage from that day led to the outrage of calling those women. And then women like you, I didn't even know, because they were getting this Excel spreadsheet from their friends. And over nine months, I crowdsourced 2,000 items of invisible work. 98 tabs in a spreadsheet, as you know, called the Should I Do Spreadsheet. But then the outrageous things I didn't even know, right, were like Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales. Yeah. I, don't have, I didn't have a girl at that point who was old enough to do that. So I was like, oh my God, that's five hours. Or sunscreen. Yes, it's two minutes to apply, but what about the 30 minutes for the chase? Right. And I would write that down. Or another outrageous one was, and this was a problem globally, who still purchased their husband's clothes.
0: Yeah, I've seen it in my friends as well. Like she was like, oh, I buy his clothes. I know his size. I know what to do. I do it better. I've heard all these things. And this is like three or four years ago. So at that point, I thought it was normal. But when I was reading Fair Play, I was like, "Uh oh, everything's coming back. All the interactions are coming back.
2: (laughs) No, it is not normal to buy clothes for your husband. It is not normal for them to say to you, I wear no underwear because... They have holes in them and you didn't buy me more underwear. I, I, It's not normal for your spouse like mine to say, well, I can't have a blueberry smoothie because you forgot to buy me my blueberries, right? This is not normal, right? It is predictable. But like I, I like to say, it's not inevitable because at the end of the day, this is fucking evitable. And like I said to you earlier, why Fair Play, the shit I do spreadsheet led to a system. And we'll talk practically how people can start to engage in the system, even if you're not in a hetero cisgender relationship. This applies to all genders. But it started where we are, our lived experience today, which is that the real problem is men. So I had to write to people married to men.
1: Right. And I think there isn't enough awareness about it in women as well. Daman and I were talking about it earlier and we were like, we love this book so much. We want to gift it to our friends who are going to have kids. And I did that. One of my best friends is going to have a child in like two months. And I gifted her this book and she got offended. She said that she doesn't have time to read it. She said that she's not looking to manage her time right now. She's fine with it. Her only responsibility is to get the kid out of her right now. <laughs> and I was like, I was trying to you know, explain to her that this is not about time management. It's about fairly dividing the tasks between you and your husband. And it doesn't matter if you have a child or not, right? You can still use it. Yes.
2: let's. Can we please dive into that a little bit? Because it's why I consider a fair play almost like a political campaign, Mm -hmm. right? Where sometimes I'm really spending four hours with one woman or man, and sometimes I'm on big stages, right? And oftentimes I try to make as much time as I can for your generation, right? For people who are younger than me, because I think I need you as cultural warriors, as I said to you earlier, not that everybody's always going to listen. And sometimes people have to come back to you and say, and you you will say like, you know, I told you so. And not in a sad way, but in a, you know, I'm here for you way. And whenever you're ready to receive these messages, we are here for women. I had a 85-year-old woman who was retiring from law. She was a law professor until she was 85. And she said she read Fair Play. I guess she was giving it to her granddaughter and she read it. And she said, you know, I'm looking for my unicorn space. And I realized like I want change, <laughs> right? So And Unicorn Space, and we'll talk about that as a concept in the book around the fact that we as women do not believe we deserve a permission to be unavailable. I think what I want to say to you is that not everyone is ready to receive these messages. This is still very provocative. It's still very new. This is a political movement to say that no longer is it okay to value women's labor as nothing, as, as zero, no longer okay for us to value women's time as sand. I say that we treat women's time as if it's infinite, infinite like sand and men's time we guard it as if it's finite, right? Like diamonds. And that was the core finding of fair play. And I think I wanted to say one thing about what women said to me, why I chose to write to women. Because we know men don't value women's time because we see that if women enter a male profession, the salaries automatically go down. Society doesn't value our time. But I think it was like, it was talking like you were to your friend, Kati. It was about like thinking how women devalue our own time because we've been conditioned to do that. And so this idea of, oh my God, my time is diamonds and I need to manage it and I have time choice or however I use it. We're not used to hearing that. And yeah. so women were saying things to me like, well, my job is more flexible or my husband makes more money than me. He's the breadwinner. Of course, I should be doing the domestic labor. Or they said to me, I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently for care. Or they said to me, in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do, I should just do it myself.
0: And um, yeah. I find the time. That's you, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, I, I always
1: keep telling my husband that I'm good at multitasking and he's not. And then I end up doing so much of the housework that I shouldn't be doing. And I realized it after I read your book.
2: Thank you. Thank you. That, that was the number one thing. I mean, that was mine, right? I took pride in being a multitasker until one of the other days I broke down. And I don't really write this off-the-record statement in the book because this neuroscientist only gave me on-the-record statement. And I'm talking to him about women and men and multitasking and saying, you know, all these job coaches, I see them saying, you know, women's superpowers are multitaskers. and We're better than men at this. First of all, he just looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, there's no gendered brain difference in how we executive function or multitask. So yeah. that was shut down, right? there, There is nothing. But then he said something that literally changed my life. He said to me, you're writing a book about this. You're, you're using my quote to tell women that they're not better multitaskers. And I said, yes, aren't you excited <laughs> to be part of my movement? And he said, well, yeah, but then we men have sort of convinced you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes
1: oh my god and
2: <laughs>
0: how great kathy, is he i told career. you kathy like we have been convinced for convenience of men
2: well that's what he said he said why are you, i'm not sure i want to be part of this he was kidding obviously but he was like uh-huh. you know it's been helpful to my tenure and my career and my wife doesn't have a problem with it because she thinks she's better at it and takes oh my god of it, and i get to golf and write more papers like i'm good like why <laughs> are you gonna blow up this you know notion it still to this day makes me tear up because it was like the armor that had been protecting me was shattered. That was the time in my life where I said I could either resign myself to doing it all, literally lose my identity in my marriage or leave like my mother, you know, had to, she, well, she was left to do it all. So is there another solution? And for me, it meant starting to treat my home like my most important organization. And so I started to ask that question, what would it look like if we treated our homes as our most important organization? And then I knew it wouldn't look like the way it does today, where women are dying in decision fatigue, resentful and angry already. I knew it wouldn't look like that. And so that's ultimately what the system of fair play became. It became Mm -hmm. an answer to that question. If we treat our homes as our most important organization with the respect and rigor it deserves, then we we will enter it with systems and respect like we do in the workplace.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, the beauty of it because I think it's so obvious the way you're spending your time or your tasks at work, just mirror them in your home, like take it end to end, right? You're assigned a task, you take it end to end. That was the best thing I loved about Fair Play, I think.
2: Well, thank you. I want to just say that for me, it was asking this question, and I, I, I talk about it so funny, but. Again, it was a global question that was so easy to answer when I was able to speak to people, I think now in 17 countries, it was, how did mustard get in your refrigerator or whatever condiment it was? Mm -hmm. Because it was so easy to see that there was a conception phase. I monitor that mustard for when it's running low. And I I get stakeholder buy-in of my family to see what else they need on the grocery list. Uh And I'd say, oh, I know that thing. That's planning. And then my husband goes to the store to go purchase the yellow mustard. And the dude brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. (laughs) And Eve, you know, I'm sorry. I I don't believe this whole own, own a task because I can't even get my husband to bring home the right type of mustard. You want him to own our living will? And yeah, I'd say, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but you know we're starting so far. And so when I what I realized that that core systems failure was happening in the heterosix gender relationship that when you can apply an ownership mindset to the home and I could at least give you the tools to start to have those conversations not for 50/50 but to start with even one card, quote unquote task, right? And that's how you start change. Mm-hmm.
0: The small And I do small. believe that men know ownership because they do this day in day out at their work they take pride in it they want all the accolades and promotions and rewards of it so they do it there i think it's the problem is when it's unpaid labor and also the whole cultural conditioning where they have never had to do this nobody ever told them that you know this whole task is yours you cannot just help us like you i love that you wrote about the helping part that quote is my favorite, but like, yeah, don't help me. Take one thing and do it, and take it off my head. That's how you yeah, actually help babysitting, me.
2: Sitting, helping. There's all these weird words, right? The problem with the generation above us was that men saw their mothers working, but they mm-hmm. also saw them doing everything in the home. Yes, taking pride Very over right. it and guarding their husband's time. So we actually were done a real disservice with the generation above us. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's did. why we have to start from scratch. So I'm here to say like, let's level the playing field. But it yeah. starts with obviously us being able to have a new language, communicate, and ultimately say, this is not on us. We deserve true partners if we have the privilege to have them. And if you are a single mother, you deserve a society that values you and
0: we're here to fight for you. Yes. And the friend I suggested a book to yesterday, they are a great couple in terms of fairness. From how I see, like, they do it very well. And yeah, it's all relative. I'm probably comparing to other couples who don't do it so well. But again, I feel like even they would benefit from your book because they'll communicate much easily in the future when she's saying, oh, I felt like I did the entire snow thing. At least they will have a contract in place that, yeah, you were supposed to do it. So she won't have a grudge, which I think is a great thing to have. love the idea of unicorn space, which is like the ultimate reward and the goal of the entire fair play system. You explain in the book that some things like working out or beautification and similar things are not part of unicorn space. So we were kind of discussing this and trying to understand more about what qualifies and what doesn't. And then we came to a point where we are like, does our podcast Qualify as our unicorn space, and we need yes. help with that.
2: <laughs> yes, of course it does. I, the way I look at uh, unicorn space, and I'm writing a whole second book about it now. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's book two. It's really looking at um, a program, right? A, a program to not only sort of burn that guilt and shame and have a permission to be unavailable, but what I found in the most creative people. And so what I found was. It was the active pursuits that are unicorn space. So I call it unicorn space, as you know, because like the mythical equine, right? It doesn't fucking exist unless you're willing to reclaim (laughs) it and not manifesting. It's this idea of committing, committing to the fact that you deserve uninterrupted time for things that you love. So listening to a podcast, self-care, eating pie, that's my self-care. It's emotional eating is how I got through the pandemic. That's self-care. Active pursuit with authentic goals. So your podcast is 1000% what I mean by Unicorn Space. It's an active pursuit. Yay. <laughs> it, it's not easy. It's hard. You have to carve out time for it. It may be quote unquote unpaid. And so then people say, well, what are you doing this for? Like it's, it, you know, why are you wasting your time? I heard that for nine years as I was writing my book. The idea that I wouldn't, God forbid, spend time with my kids on a Sunday. and Oh my God, Seth had them for the full day because I was researching the gender division of labor. Like why, why would I be doing that? We get washes of waves that just crash into us that say, you don't deserve the permission to be unavailable from your role if it's unpaid. So that's why to me, you have to do this podcast. It's your unimonia. It's your flow state. It doesn't mean it'll always be easy. But I will say to people out there is what makes you you and how do you share that with the world? Because that the sharing with the world component became almost universal in the people who were telling me that they were thriving in their own unique time alone. And that sharing is so powerful. It could be what you're doing, which is basically saying, look, we have a voice and we're going to challenge those norms. Whatever it is, it's incredibly valuable. And everybody deserves it, especially after children, which is um, when we often put ourselves last.
1: That's true. Yeah. I think that is why I have seen a lot of my friends when they have kids, they just lose, like you you also talk about it in the book, they just lose themselves somewhere. They let go of their hobbies that make them happy or excited, even if they're unpaid, right? So I think that idea of unicorn space was really amazing.
2: And can I say one thing? I think we know, for especially for women, you you hear the word hobby or vanity project or passion project, like I want to burn all those things. Because (laughs) they sound so nice to have or almost privileged to have. When I want to say that the active pursuits that make you you, uninterrupted attention for things that you love is probably the most important thing for your mental health.
0: Yeah. And what you said, Eve, is so important and so prevalent. A lot of women, their pursuits are creative. That could just be how we have grown up. It could be a cultural thing or it could just be a very general thing. But when women do any of this, it's like, oh, it's a hobby. And like, you know, this is something you do in your free time. And then men, they make their boys clubs with other men. And they are like, oh, we are discussing business ideas. Yeah. Nothing is (laughs) coming out of that. Nothing (laughs) at all. And at least I can say for my project, yeah, Kathy and I are not making big bucks out of this. But at least I would like to say we are cash flow positive. I'm how Even if you men, worried,
2: though, even if you weren't, yeah. is still valuable. That's yes. true. That
0: and is, and we never it. did this for money, so Snap, we don't care. Right, but exactly. I wanna like tell those men who attach a power trip of money to everything, like how many of your business idea conversations are actually cash flow positive? Like, let's discuss <laughs> that before you shame people's hobbies.
2: I'm giving you three snaps. <laughs> I love that so much, and and. Again, that is amazing. It is something to be proud of. Our culture is so obsessed with money and and we get lost. And I talk about this in the book a lot. We get lost in intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And so what you see in the research is that it's often hard in midlife as we get older to separate the two. So when you're young, you're intrinsically motivated, right? And so I just want us all to come back to more of our intrinsic motivation. And the way I started to do that and write about it in Fair Play, but now translates over to book two, is this idea that really understanding and living your values is very, very important. Oftentimes, we don't get to reflect on those values, right? Maybe those are not values that serve us anymore. Looking at some of the values that we've been given extrinsically versus intrinsically, why are you motivated? And I'll ask you that question. Just for fun, so Jamal, what 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 makes you in intrinsically excited? What what's give me one value that you have that you want to share with the world?
0: I think I love to create, right, and that's the basis of so many things that I do in my life. I have this creative energy that I want to put out.
1: I love that. What about you, Kati? I think in whatever I do, I love to see some change in the world by what I'm doing, and that is what intrinsically motivates me. So, like a podcast, and then. I'm working on my own ed tech startup. Even if I'm doing a full time job, I keep looking for things that have changed the world a little bit, like my actions that cause the world to change a little bit in a positive way. So that's what motivates me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I cheer up even just hearing that. You know, how often do we get to talk about you know our values and what you know motivates us? At the end of the day, I think you mo- you know you find such beauty beauty in people when you know what motivates them.
0: This conversation of values. One, it reminded me that nobody really talks about this in real lives. And the only time I actually heard this word used was in companies where they are like, oh, these are our five values, which is like innovation and like some version of it. So for the Um, longest time, I thought these are the only values you can have. Later, I figured out, no, like you can have any value that resonates with you. But it's so confusing because no real person is talking about it. Only tech companies are talking about it. That's
2: right. And that's why I said that's why I confused people when on the playground, I'd say, so what are your values? But then the stories we get to tell. And this is sort of why values became the core of fair play. Because what I realized was that my life was not going to change by treating the cards, this metaphor as a list. I just said to Seth, you have, you have fucking garbage. It's yours, right? It, It didn't, it wasn't working. It was when we took the step back to align on what we both cared about as a family so that he could have buy-in. I don't remember the vows I said on my wedding day, but what I remember so clearly was the, the values conversation we had over garbage. And that was he was owning garbage, but we were still butting heads because I was a garbage stalker, right? I would I would sit, stare at him, <laughs> you know, say, okay, he said he'd put the garbage liner back in and take it out. Or he knows what CPE means, conception, planning, execution, but why am I still so nervous that it's going to get done? And I realized I'd missed the very key step of what I do in my day job and my mediation practice, which is force people, force them to have these values conversations. And so that's why when people yeah. skip that step of fair play, they say, well, well, it's not working. I'm like, well, did you skip step two? Because usually that's why it's not working. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really build our deck together. We just started to see who does what. I'm like, well, then it's not going to work. <laughs> the key part of the Fair Play book, and now the book two, is that you ha- you tell your stories. That's where the minimum standard of care idea came in. It's this idea in Fair Play that we can agree on a minimum standard of care if we're willing to have conversations. So yes, yeah, so Seth and I invested 20 minutes in talking about garbage. Guess what, folks? My garbage goes out every day. Before he goes to bed at night, Seth owns that task. And it was because I was willing to tell him my stories and he was able to tell me his stories. Tell your stories. Think about your values. What are the values that you've been given? What ones resonate? Which ones do you not need anymore?
0: I love this you being so honest with us here and also raising this important point of values which I think is definitely missing from our conversations we don't talk to our friends about it we don't talk about it at all and I think it's so important in a partnership more than anything else
1: yeah and this is the first time we have talked about our values actually yeah so thank you for initiating that conversation Eve. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And if you guys ever
2: feel you're at a creative standstill with each other, sometimes, but usually, it's often there is some sort of story or values that needs to be told. That's all. And it, right. it becomes an easy way to break through.
1: Yeah. Since we are a book podcast, one of the questions that we ask all our guests is, what are the books that you're reading right now?
2: Oh, my God. That's my favorite question. I will
1: say Well-Behaved Indian Woman, right? That is one oh, of
2: my nice. books. I just finished Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. My friend just wrote something called The Prophets, which is an amazing book and the same imprint as my book for Black History Month. It is a book about queer slaves and what it was like to sort of live in that time period and um, have a same-sex relationship. It's a really, really beautiful book. And obviously, it's bigger than that, but it's centered around that. Another book I just started to read is this amazing book of poetry called What Kind of Woman? And someone sent it to me because she said so much in it is so resonant with fair play. And I'll read you just one quick poem to end on. 1,000 Wives. The secret is my husband has many wives. One for bluebird mornings, one for doubt in the afternoon, one for the stretch of evening when the children perform their endless rituals. There is the business wife, the wanting wife, the wife who stands on the front porch and needs to talk to you. For a time, we have the good wife, the sin wife, eventually the dead wife, the ghost of every woman who tried to change for you.
0: Wow, love that. Before we end our discussion today, is there something that you would like to say to our listeners?
2: Yes, I'm here to tell you that your time is diamonds. You may not even know what that means yet, but one day you will if you are stuck in our traditional roles that often we we end up in. And I'm also here to say that you deserve that permission to be unavailable. And the last thing I'll say is that if you have guilt and shame, do as my good friend, another book I love to read is Dr. Cheryl Gonzalez Ziegler's book. It's called Mommy Burnout. She always says, when you feel guilt and shame, especially when you know really deep down you shouldn't, reframe it to say, I made that decision because. So now I say, I feel guilty because I didn't put Anna to bed. I'm not putting Anna to bed tonight. Instead, I say, I made that decision because. I get to be on Brown Girls Read, you know. I get I get to be with sharing myself with the world. I get to create. I get to change the world, right? I get to use my values in a way that's going to ultimately inspire my daughter. It becomes so much more empowering if you think I'm. I feel guilty because to say I made that decision because, or I am making that decision
1: because. That's an amazing message, and I think everyone needs to hear this.
2: I have choice over how I use my time and I get to act on those, that time choice. And to me, that is my wish for your listeners. It's my wish for all women that we have equal time choice over how how we use our days
0: as men do. Thank you, Eve. That's super empowering. And I hope more people can take your message forward.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Eve. And we really enjoyed discussing so many things with you. Your favorite reads, your inspiration, your journey, our values as well. Like It has given us so much to think about and you're such a powerhouse. We completely love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: So this was a discussion with Eve whom we love for creating the fair play system and sharing it with all of us to get more fairness and unicorn space in our lives. For our next episode, we are reading Karma and Other Stories by Rishi Reddy. We hope you'll be reading with us. And until then, keep listening!
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Brown Girls Read podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a 5-star rating and a comment. You can support us at anchor.fm slash browngirlsread slash support. Your support will allow us to continue this podcast and bring more episodes to you. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Brown Girls Read Pod and Brown Girls Read One on Twitter. If you have book recommendations for us, you can leave us a comment or message on our social media, and you can also subscribe to us on YouTube for more content.